0: Christina Cho, and this is STEAM, the podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, you're listening to part two of Crushing the Interview. Last episode, I chatted with Dr. Danielle Perry about her experience as both the interviewee and interviewer in the nonprofit sector. And the episode prior to that, episode two, with Drs. Catherine Wu and Courtney Schmidt, we talked about how to land an interview, writing a good cover letter and resume, and maybe even cold calling or emailing people to find out about job opportunities and land that interview. So, if you'd like to listen to those episodes again, or hear them for the first time, go to our website at projectsteam.org and listen in anytime. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Crystal Amastarbird about the ins and outs of interviewing for an academic position, from graduate student to faculty. We'll also talk about her experiences as an academic scientist and what she plans to do as a principal investigator of her own lab. Dr. Crystalama Starbird is an adjunct assistant professor of biochemistry and biophysics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Starbird received her Bachelor of Science degree in biology from UNC Chapel Hill and her Ph.D. in biology from Vanderbilt University. She then completed her postdoctoral training at Yale University in the Department of Pharmacology and Cancer Biology. As a structural biologist, Dr. Starbird studies how the shape of a protein impacts how they work. Her groundbreaking and exciting research has been published in multiple peer-reviewed journals and has received several awards. In addition, Dr. Starbird has won various types of fellowships throughout her career— including the prestigious NIH Mosaic K99-R00 Postdoctoral Career Transition Award. Not only is Dr. Starbird an outstanding young investigator, but she is also a fierce advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEAM. She has co-authored a series of articles in high-impact scientific journals that discuss important issues surrounding DEI in the academic setting, spoken at various events to promote DEI and STEAM, served as a mentor of the steering committee of the inaugural Intersections Science Fellows Symposium, and was a board member of the National Black Postdoctoral Association and co-founded the Yale Black Postdoc Association. She is truly a rock star, and I'm so thrilled to be talking to her today. Hey, Crystal. Hey, thank you
1: for that amazing introduction. Um, I don't know about the rock star title, but I'll, I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think when, when our lab first moved onto like West Campus, there was like a profile of you on like one of the TVs, (laughs) like Dr. Crystal on the starboard. I was like, whoa, (laughs) I would like to be highlighted like that one day. But yeah, now I think you've done such amazing work and, um, you deserve all the accolades so thank you yeah no i actually somebody caught me taking a picture of that like
1: a picture of me (laughs) taking a picture of that to send to my mom just because i was like look is this mean i've made it kind of i don't know um yeah no that was that was amazing um so i have like a small correction oh sure sure absolutely Um, so, technically, I'm in this weird sort of transition in between okay. phase. So, I'm still a postdoc at Yale, actually. Oh, okay. Um, the adjunct position just allows me to do some very preliminary things um, with okay. preparing the lab. But the lab will officially open in February, and uh-huh. I'll
0: officially be
1: um, a full assistant professor in, in February. Yeah.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah, I was like, I think she still has her Yale email. So this is really interesting. This is a really good thing to add into the episode. So people understand that there's a lot of uh, transitional periods uh, in an academic career, and mm-hmm. that the different titles have different meanings. And um, certain some institutions have multiple levels of faculty. I know, um I'm not sure if this has changed, but when I was an undergrad at UCLA, there were eight levels of faculty, you know, and to get to full professor, there were seven steps of transitional periods you had to go through, um, which is kind of (laughs) crazy. But is that how it is at UNC as well? Um, You know, I'm still learning the ropes, but there are different types of faculty. Um, You know,
1: generally, the traditional path for tenure track is assistant associate professor, full yeah. professor. So that's, I think, very traditional. Yeah. But there are research faculty um, mm-hmm. that um, they're teaching faculty. And so there's different types of faculty. And this describes, you know, what their primary goal will be at UNC. Are they primarily teaching students and maybe doing some research as well? The research faculty, as it implies, are very committed to their research um, and sort of funded differently. Um, but of course, all are a huge part of the enterprise at UNC.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah, I see. Like, I I haven't really looked into the job market yet because I'm not quite ready. So I actually didn't know. I thought everywhere was like pretty much assistant, associate, and then full and like the little in betweens. Um, but I didn't realize that even for PhDs, there were like teaching tracks versus research tracks. I thought that was mostly for the like medical scientists or um, physicians who want to do research or want to teach. But I guess researchers also have the opportunity. Like PhDs have the opportunity to do like different tracks, yeah, uh, based on their interests.
1: Definitely. I think multiple things are open to us that we don't realize. Um, You know, like, people always think, well, if you want to do teaching as opposed to running a lab, then you go to a different type of institution, but that's not necessarily the case. Mm. You know, many of the R1 institutions also have teaching faculty. um, And if that's the type of environment that you want to be in, you know, those opportunities are there as well, um, for sure. And there are research faculty, and I think generally this is... Commonly either linked to another lab, so you might Mm -hmm. have a lab where you have a professor who has a research faculty in their lab, but then you have independent research faculty that are essentially running their own labs. Um, I think this generally tends to be... A short-term position, so three mm-hmm. to five years. And I think oftentimes these people have funding for a project that they want to keep going. They're not quite sure perhaps what they want to do, if they want to go on the tenure track, if they want to do these things. They just kind of want to do research for a little bit and explore. And you know, those opportunities are available. Some research faculty though are permanent. So yeah, definitely there's always lots of options. And what I encourage people to think about <coughs> is I don't think um, it's always true that the options that are available are just the ones that seem to exist. You know, sometimes, and I admit this is rare, but I do have friends that have essentially created roles um, or opportunities at universities. They said to them, look, this is what I really want to do. And, um, you know, they have essentially created sort of new roles that they're defining as they go. And there's some difficulties with that, but it's also, (laughs) I'm sure, really freeing. Um, Yeah. the sky's the limit,
0: I say. That's really, that's a really fresh perspective. Um, And it's so nice to hear your insight and experience because I think this is something we touched upon on a, on a different episode as well, but there's not that much career guidance, uh, when you're in an academic setting, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, expectation that you'll s- either stay in academia or, you know, maybe you'll choose industry or, you know, okay, there's government, but there's no real, um, like, hey, this is how you go about it. Hey, these are the different options. This is what you should do. This is how you prepare. And I think that's a really big gap in in training and education that, um, you know, institutions and programs should really think about. You know, I know that the main focus when someone gets into the STEAM career is getting their education in that specific field or becoming an expert in that specific field. So there's a lot of time spent on that and that's very important but you know you get those skills and you have to apply it to a job but if you don't know what jobs are out there or how to get them like (laughs) what what are you gonna do with that training? Yeah absolutely I mean if we're training people to be experts
1: and to think about the world I think differently which I think ultimately what postdoctoral I mean what uh, dissertation doctoral training is about is how we approach problems um, you know and we should also be preparing them for how are they going to apply those problems. I mean, it's pretty obvious that not everybody is going to go the academic route. I think we're down to less than one in 10 um, is what I heard most recently, but yeah. I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. So obviously, the vast majority majority are actually not following that route. Yes. So the question is, where yeah. do they go? And why are we not, as a whole, tapping into those resources and learning about what's what's out there? I think there are some universities that do a great job at this, Um you know, I spent a lot of time at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt um, has a careers program, um, and I, the, the name escapes me. But I think it it is one of the best jobs I've seen personally mm. in an academic environment for letting people know about, like, what the possibilities are. Mm. Um, the problem is sometimes, though, you're so focused, and we are taught this, you're so focused on what you're doing, on the research. You have alumni coming in who are working in industry, government, other things. And sometimes you go to these panels, but you're not fully connected because you're yeah. like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm just trying to get through the next day. And then when the time comes for you to be making those decisions, yeah. you're like, I don't remember. I don't remember what what I learned in those meetings necessarily. So it always feels like you're just kind of out there without yeah. guidance. Yeah,
0: I think that that's a really, that that is a really um, important thing awareness that, you know, when you're kind of in it, when you're in the, he- in like the thick of things, when you're trying to graduate, when you're trying to get your classes done, when you're trying to, you know, finish your project, get published, all of those milestones and pressures that are there during your training, it's really hard to kind of take a step back and think about the why you're doing this. Like, what is it that you want for yourself? Where do you envision your future? Like, how do you plan to live out your life, right? And I know, at least for me, work is like 80% of my life, unfortunately, for my (laughs) child and husband. (laughs) I think I spend, definitely, I spend a lot of my days in the lab or working on my, you know, non-bench work stuff, like writing. Um, And then there are very few times when I stop and I go, huh, yeah, where do I see myself in like Mm -hmm. five years? Until I'm writing like this career grant that's like, what's your long-term (laughs) update? <laughs> Where do you want to go? And you're like, oh, yeah, I should have been kind of planning this for a little while. So, you know, I think um, one of the aims of this project and this podcast is to, through conversation and just in part like first person narrative, like talk about these things that really help people stay in STEAM fields, whether it's an academic track and becoming a professor, going into industry or doing nonprofit or finding your own career niche that's like uniquely yours. You know, um, we hope that listeners feel encouraged to create a path of passion, and also the know how to get there. And so, yeah, I think you know, I'm really glad you're here, and you're bringing us this like very important perspective on the academic track and all the different options there are, and the fact that you can even create your own roles. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. I'm, I'm really glad to be
1: here, definitely. And I think that this is a good purpose. Um, You know, of having this poke podcast, just because uh, this is an aside, kind of. But I feel like the pace of science has increased in you know, I don't know, the last twenty or thirty years, and maybe others will agree with this. And the amount of output that we have, I feel like, is greater than it used to be. A side effect of that is, you know, that's great, maybe, maybe for the advancement of science, but a side effect of that is. This old view of the scientist who's kind of like sitting on the lawn, thinking through his project, and then going and doing is something of the past. And I worry a little bit about the amount of time that we get to really have those moments to just sit and think, um, not just about Mm -hmm. our research, but about our future and what we're going to do in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. So apparently, I, I don't I don't know where these numbers come from, but apparently, the standard amount of hours for a PhD student in a lab should be twenty hours a week. <laughs> um, I don't <know>, see you. <laughs> like how how is that possible and (laughs) I think the the intention behind the 20-hour week is that you know 20 hours physically in the lab and then 20 hours or 30 hours or whatever many hours outside of the lab dedicated for the thinking and reflection Mm -hmm. and analysis and planning and I think you know I remember hearing that number and I was having this conversation with my husband I was like that's in possible. I was like, a 20-hour week. I was like, okay, let's split it up into five days. It's like four-hour lab days. But you know, when I think back to how much my efficiency changed after having my child, four hours is a lot of time to get a lot of effective work done if it's been planned. And if you've prepared and you know the questions you're asking and you've designed the experiment even before hitting the bench, right? Um, Four hours is plenty of time. And I think, I think um, now that you're going to be faculty and you'll have people in the lab too. And I know that's kind of the track I want to go. That's something I think about a lot about how I can um, encourage, you know, people who work with me and also myself to take a step back from just like beating it at the bench to like really thinking about what you're doing. And I think this applies for like, any job that has any kind of creativity, um, a lot of people might not think science is like a creative art, but it kind of is. Yeah. you know, you're you're discovering new things. It you're, definitely is. Yeah, and and you're thinking about questions in a different way. Or there's a lot of curiosity involved, and and you do have to think creatively to address problems that we haven't been able to address in the past. And so, creative thinking requires a lot of energy, mental energy. And so, if you don't have that energy and the time to just even rest even, just like to do nothing, you know, you might like not have the best idea and the best work at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I am going to be running an experiment in my lab, and I apologize if that experiment doesn't work out to my future lab members. No, <laughs> but I actually plan to strongly encourage time off. And I don't just mean like time off two or three weeks a year to go somewhere enjoying. I mean, like, we'll likely have one week a year where the whole lab shuts down um, and these kinds of things. And I think actually that the trade off will be worth it. Like, Mm -hmm. my philosophy is that people don't have enough time to decompress and that that actually works against them. Really applying themselves well to science. I see a lot of people in the lab that are there constantly. They're doing the same experiments over and over again. They're making the same mistakes. Um, And I feel like it's that mindset of, oh, I've got to get the next piece of data. And I'm not so sure that that's actually the most productive way to run things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really plan to sort of take a very different approach. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see if that really works out. I know lots (laughs) of the older people that advise me are like, oh, that's silly. That's what all young people say. Um, That kind of thing. But I actually really strongly believe in this. So, we're gonna, we're gonna see how it goes. Because I think that time is important. I also think like, most most people if you ask them like for that time of reflection they'll say well that's at lab meeting you know like we sit and talk about science in lab meeting but i think mm-hmm. actually lab meeting in most lab environments has become like a really high pressure type of situation
0: yeah um, absolutely let's
1: present let's see what you did did you do anything where's your data like it i think t- tends to less times be sort of that idealized really like talking about the science mm-hmm. thinking about the possibilities and that kind of thing and so i will also work Really hard to encourage that type of thing, and part of that is you know not having lab meeting as often. Mm. Um, so the checking in is important, but I, I really want them to have time to think about their own science before we come and sit and talk about it together. So, you know, we'll see. But I think <laughs> about these things, too. And these are the strategies that I plan to employ. And, and yeah, we'll see how that, that goes.
0: Yeah. So, hey, all you young biologists out there, biochemist, structural biologists, look, Dr. Starbird is opening up a lab <laughs> where you'll have some time to think and breathe. But really, um, I know later in the series, uh, the season, we're going to have an episode on like burnout. Mental health, and hopefully, we'll bring this up again. Um, but you know, for institutions and professors and employers, understand that just pushing someone to work, work, work doesn't actually work. Like, you're not going to get the best of their abilities, and you're really creating a, an environment that's not sustainable and mm-hmm. it's not really the best you can do for not just the person, but for you as well as the leader. And so, yeah, I I think this is a conversation we definitely will repeat multiple times. Um, But I'm so glad to hear that the next generation of faculty are, you know, they're like thinking about this stuff and trying to implement Like actual changes. That's that's awesome. Yeah.
1: I mean, of course we think about these things. It's like anything in generations, right? Like the generation before you see things that you identify as missteps and, you know, whether it's raising your children, how you run your business, you know, all these things, you learn the lessons from the past and sometimes you do the opposite and that doesn't work out either. So I think we're all sort of gradually moving towards now that we have all these advancements in equipment and being able to do some really fast science, are we making sure that we're keeping up with it in the most productive way, that we're directing the use of these instruments in the most productive way? So I think these are things that we all think about, and I'm sure we'll see changes as a whole coming, you know, going forward in labs. And I hope personally that these changes make a, a difference in in burnout and these kinds of things so that, like, when you don't typically talk to a fifth year, it's not the same story, you know, like, I'm mm-hmm. done. I'm over this.
0: <laughs> right. I want to get out. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that that comes. Th- so let, let's just like take it a step back a little bit. So, you know, you've pursued a career in structural biology. And and so like, you know, that's it's a long route, right? From like undergrad, grad school, postdoc, now faculty and even as faculty, I think you're continually learning and, and training. So, you know, what inspired or who inspired you to become a structural biologist and like enter into this field?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if I had any direct inspiration. I've had inspiration in the past, and I'll tell you about that in a second. Like, Mm -hmm. after I was a structural biologist, Mm -hmm. um, people that I I connected with that I was like, wow, I really want to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, But as a structural biologist, like, how did I get there? Um, So, I have have worked in several science fields, um, and... I think it's the nature of my personality. And I mean this like literally, when I was a kid, I had the nickname Echo, and it was because everybody would say something and I would echo it back as a question. You know, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> there's a rainbow. And I'd be like, there's a rainbow. Why is there a rainbow? How did the rainbow come to be there? Like, I was a very curious <laughs> kid. So yeah. yeah, so I always had, you know, the next question. And I think that that's actually how I ended up as a structural biologist. So I started as like an environmental scientist, actually. Wow. And that's huge. You know, that's thinking about um, world problems and beyond, the, beyond, the, you know, universal problems. Um, and I, I had same kind of thing. I was like, well but I wonder what happens to the small things that we observe, like these organisms and things like that. And then, you know, I went to different sciences. I went straight to microbiology after that. So I guess I was like, I really want to know what happens to the small things that are in the water supply Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, the bacteria. And, you know, I started learning about pathways and virulence and to virulence and and that kind of thing and I was like well well, how does that happen exactly you know how does something become virulent like how does it get into a cell like how does it do this and so I just feel like for every field I was in I kept asking like the next question and so finally you get to down to well there are proteins (laughs) you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're at the atomic level. So it's, it's close to as, as small as you can go. And these proteins, you know, this protein might have this mutation and mm-hmm. that causes the protein to misfunction in this way and that leads to disease. And that was the it place for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that's the, the last question I wanted to ask. Like now I feel like I'm starting to really understand how these small things start and build into something like, you know, a disease presentation and that kind of thing. So... I think it was just that that personality of wanting to know the next question. Yeah. But then also, like when I determined my first structure, which is when I was a postdoc actually here at UNC, um, and it was um, almost one angstrom resolution, which might not mean much to you, but this is the point where you can really sort of see um, density for individual atoms. Um, you can start to see hydrogens and that kind of thing. So it's really wow. getting an atomic look. And I was like, wow this is amazing. Like, I'm seeing something that you could never see with the eye, but I'm also seeing something that nobody in the world has ever seen before. That's and so that cool. was, like, hugely impactful to me. I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, like, mind-blown. Like, this is so cool. Who who wouldn't want to be a structural biologist? <laughs> no, I realize now, like, that there are a lot more things we need to fill in, you know, those questions. If we're talking about, you know, Biology uh, proteins that are involved in disease pathways. Well, we have to understand the diseases. We have to have somebody mm-hmm. working at the tissue level and the cell biology level. And now I've just sort of gained like a huge appre- appreciation for how I fit into like this multidisciplinary pursuit mm-hmm. of understanding like
0: human life and and disease. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. <laughs> oh, that's so that is like really cool. I think how it's just you know. I- this is like, this is also a topic that keeps coming up. I think you end up doing, I think you're the happiest when you do something you actually are interested in and enjoy and love. And like, it fits with who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. I think when you kind of like force fit yourself into a job or a role or a career path that was, you know, Uh, told to you versus you kind of like fall into it or you develop a love for it, the sustainability and the retention, I think changes. I think in order for you to stay in a path that is as challenging as all the steam paths are, you know, there has to be some level of love and passion for what you do. So that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I tell everybody, and I don't know if they always
1: listen, but so I used to work in industry. I worked at Pfizer for a short period of time. And people always ask me, well, why did you decide not to go back to industry? And why did you choose academia? Um, And there are many reasons for both. And I loved both environments. But the biggest answer is, and I can point to reasons when I talk to them, but industry wasn't for me. As an individual, there's nothing inherently wrong with industry, it is an amazing enterprise. Um, But I knew what made me passionate. And it just wasn't at that place. Um, Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing I tell people is not, should I choose industry or government or academia? Um, It's can you sit down with yourself and really get to like what motivates you what parts of the scientific enterprises are most exciting to you is it working in teams is it you know the bench science is it teaching and then use that to decide like what career you want to pursue
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really good transition. I was going to ask you, so what made you stay in academia? Like, why not other paths? Because um, you were talking about like the one in 10. So the, the number, I think, is like three to five percent of Ph.D. holders actually become professors, right? So the vast majority are not professors. But here you are, you know, a rare form <laughs> Here's like a professor. Um, so like, yeah, I wanted to ask, like, what what motivated you to be like, I'm going to stay on on this path? Like, I'm like, this is what I want to do. And was there ever a time when you're like, I don't know if this is for me? Or, you know, maybe I should like segue into something else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, the most honest answer was there ever a time when I
1: thought about is this really the path? Yeah, it was. uh, To be honest with you, it was all it was financial motivation. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that I'm a first gen student. And you know, it hasn't been easy, like yeah. pursuing the academic path. It's especially not easy when, you know, as a postdoc, you get offers from industry and other places, and they're like, "Hey, we will pay you a reasonable salary today." <laughs> yeah, and you're struggling, <laughs> and so you're like, "I don't know. Am I really? Is it worth it? Holding on to this? You know, these these personal ideals and that kind of thing." Um, and then I think about how much I enjoyed working in industry, and I, I would still go back there. But ultimately, for me. When I think about, you know, the things that motivate me the most, they're all things that align with the academic pathway, or at least Mm. the idealized academic Mm -hmm. pathway. Because Mm -hmm. the reality is that sometimes academic science doesn't look like many of us think it really should look like. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love talking about science. I love being at the bench. Um, I love, like, training somebody at the bench and Mm -hmm. I love seeing someone's face when they get good results I even love talking through bad results and thinking about not bad that's a Poor, poor statement. But when you get the <laughs> results that you, you expect, right, yeah, we
0: didn't expect.
1: Right. <laughs> when you get the results that are not what you expected, you know, I'm really one of those people that believes that that's just as exciting. And there's Absolutely. maybe that moment of disappointment because it doesn't fit into your story. But what you have to realize is it's telling you a different story. Mm-hmm. And now the creative part is figuring out like what is that story that we need to pursue and investigate. Um, I love all of that stuff. I love. Mm-hmm. Um, interacting with students, but I don't, and I love teaching, but I don't necessarily love the idea of like teaching a course every semester. Like Mm -hmm. that's my primary um, role, but I love teaching in the lab. And so, you know, I thought about all these things. I also love, this is an important one um, (laughs) for the transition ministry. I love being able to direct the research myself. So, Mm -hmm. I like to be the one, you know, sitting in the room, looking at the data and saying, we need to do this next. And I wanted to be able to do that. So, For me, the only choice was academic science, and I've, like, when I entered graduate school, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do, and some people are unsure, and that is perfectly fine, but I was just Mm -hmm. not one of those people. I was like, this is absolutely what I want to do. Um, And beyond that, you know, as a black woman, to be honest with you, um, we see how few of us Mm-hmm. there are in academic science, and that was also a motivating factor. When I would talk to trainees who were like, well, I don't know, I want to be an academic scientist, I want to lead a research lab, but to be honest with you, I don't see anybody that looks like me, um, and I just don't know if we can make it in this mm-hmm. environment. And that was really disheartening for me to hear. I was like, I have to be the change I want to see. I have to succeed in science and show people that this is possible for us, that we are fully capable of doing this, of leading amazing science in these environments, despite whatever barriers or obstacles we may face. Mm -hmm. So, that's also motivating. You know, I'm kind of, as a child, I was that person who, like, if you told me I couldn't do something, I was absolutely going to do do it. it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yep. And that hasn't changed. You know, when people say, like, people like you can't succeed in science or they don't succeed in science, I'm like, watch me.
0: Yeah. That's, that is so... That is so inspiring and also a little bit, to me, a little bit sad, only because I feel like that's such a huge pressure on any individual, right? To be like, I have to be the change. And like, yes, that's amazing. That's inspiring. But also like the systems in place. The, the status quo that created that environment where you have to be the change and you have to be the driving force. That's a lot. Individuals do make change. That is absolutely true. And individuals drive change. But I really hope, that, like not just STEAM, but all the efforts that are being made right now to make STEAM a little bit more inclusive and representative and equitable. I hope all of these plans and initiatives really do fix the big problem that we have in Steam, which is it wasn't made for all. Yeah, it was made for a very specific few. Absolutely, um, I'm so glad that's what motivated. And I'm just, I just, I just think that it's. I'm sure there's like people out there who are listening to this, being like, I feel that way right now. Like I have a mentee who's like that, who's like, I feel like I'm the only black scientist people are going to see, and I feel like I have to do really well. And I'm like you you also can just do well for yourself. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's yeah. a lot yeah, of yeah. pressure. Yeah, um, you know, I don't think about it like pressure.
0: Like, okay. first
1: of all, um, I'm in the place doing the things that I love. So awesome. there's no um, external or internal pressure to do the things I love. It's, an ad, it's like an added thing, where yeah. it's also like, while I'm doing these things, while I'm, you know, um, doing them well, I am also aware of the fact that I'm becoming a role model for people who look like me. And that is a driving factor on those really tough days. You know, tough days happen to everybody. So, it ends mm-hmm. up being not pressure, but motivation. It's not mm-hmm. as if I'm thinking of that constantly, but when I'm having those tough days where I'm like, maybe I should just accept that industry job. I'm like, no, no, no. First of all, you love this. And Mm -hmm. second of all, you inspire so many people and you're not going to quit because you never wanted to quit. And you're not going to let these pressures and these barriers and things people say drive you to quit. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's really just sort of a motivating thing but also I'll say somebody has to be first Mm -hmm. and I don't mean me there's lots of um, you know black faculty out there that are inspiring us and inspire me every day but I'm talking about as a whole like Mm -hmm. many of us many of us are coming on now um, and increasing the numbers and we're sort of like a front together and that's what I mean like we have to be the first And, and the reason is you know you mentioned that science is not made sometimes for people like us um, and that includes like first gen, low socioeconomic mm-hmm. status, um, background, uh, that kind of thing. And you're right, but it won't be until we're in the room guiding the principles. Absolutely. And so we have to be there, you know, and I've learned this myself, you know, um, yeah. As we've worked on some things at Yale together, right? That yeah. when we're there we, in the room, we can say, Hey, guys, um, I just this. wanted to know that, yeah, exactly. There, there's something missing um, mm-hmm. that we need to address. And yeah,
0: so I think it's immensely powerful. Yeah. That is, yeah, I just, that, yep. <laughs> I, like, I have nothing to add to that. It's like, exactly true. Um, you are right. That is, like, in order for us to make the system different or make the status quo change, we have to be in the room, the rooms that we were traditionally not in. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. Um, And so, wow, you're so cool. Something that you mentioned, like the ups and downs, like I wanted to talk about this too a little bit because um, I know that For our listeners, there's a a different. different, Everyone who's listening is in a different stage, right? There's some that are probably maybe just thinking about going to grad school. They're already in grad school or doing the postdoctoral training, Um, or you know, in the art field, they're also going to school and training. So there's 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 years. (laughs) <laughs> of of ups and downs. Lots and of years. I, I, lots of years. And I remember for me in grad school, there was this like, I had this one day, it's like always in my memory, this one day, it was just like super rough. You know, I had like a week where like things were just not going really well in the lab and it like culminated in this super long day. And at the end, I got results that were like totally not expected. And I remember walking home, I opened the door and I stood at the bottom of the stairs and I just started crying. Like I was so, And I was just like, not okay. And my roommates were like, What the hell is going on? (laughs) They're like, Are you okay? Because, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty positive, high energy person. Like, you know, people have told me I'm like the, like joy from inside out. You know, I push sadness away pathologically, you know? Yeah. Um, But then I came I was just so just like overwhelmed with like disappointment and, and heartbreak and frustration and this like overwhelming thought of like, I'm never going to finish. I'm never going to get this stupid thesis done. I'm never leaving. (laughs) I'm going to like, I'll never get this degree. And, you know, I, I just like, I, I remember those moments and when I talk to like students or people who are, you know, still like kind of getting to, you know, the precipice of their career, right? They're like, feel like, oh, like why? I just, just, you know what? I can just do something easier. Let's just like drop it. Um, But for me, like I had a lot of support from the people in my life and in grad school it was you know not only did I go to therapy and like go to yoga but like I also had like two really good friends Kathleen and Josh hi guys um that like just kind of we just like bonded together had coffee together complained about stuff together Mm -hmm. and now I have a really supportive husband who probably hears me complaining about stuff all the time and my little toddler who's just like a ball of joy and energy and I think it's really important for people to understand that you know there will be ups and downs and who you surround yourself with really makes a difference do you have people like that in your life like yeah. that support you Absolutely. And you know, what you say
1: is absolutely true. The first thing is there are ups and downs. It tend, It's common, I think, to look at people like me and you and to just see like our accolades, you know, because that's what we put on our CV. They'll say, oh, you know, Crystal got this award and... NSF, and then Crystal got this award, the Mosaic, and Crystal, you know, got this paper done, and everything just was, was moving awesome. along really smoothly <laughs> for Crystal. And I promise you, not just for me, but for almost everybody, that is absolutely not the case. I had many of those days um, where I was like, I'm, I'm just not, maybe I'm in the wrong place. I'm mm-hmm. not meant for this. Um, you know, and that's when you rely on those people. And I had people, I had people you know i'm I'm also very positive, so people tend to think that that's sort of naivete or idealism um, yeah <laughs> that's the stance I tend to take. I know all of the bad things, yeah, um, but I believe that there's a way around to navigate around most things Absolutely. and I'm able to maintain that positive attitude because. Of the support I have. So for me, I had my husband, we met in undergrad, and we've been married all through grad school. So wow. his job is like, <laughs>
0: he's not, <laughs> Can you I, say? I've also, I've
1: also <laughs> been to therapy, but he, sometimes we joke like he's my academic whisperer or therapist, you know, because I come home and there's stuff he doesn't even understand. And I'm like, this experiment just it doesn't make any sense and you know this is this or this person said this and he's just like you know he listens to all of it and and gives advice um but really (laughs) it's just being able to have that outlet and they're Mm -hmm. also friends i'm Mm -hmm. big about building community Mm -hmm. um i think it's so important especially when you're operating in spaces where you may not look like the majority Mm -hmm. um i think Having that community is just so important to make you feel like that sense of belonging, but also having that outlet, so I have yeah. my friends um, <laughs> right now I'm, you know Eileen and Briona, yeah, we, we text almost every day, even though i 'm you know no longer on on the Yale campus, um, and there are other people you know I have a pop circle um, that um, we 've developed with new faculty of color um, around the country, and we mm-hmm. meet once a month and we Like talk about the good stuff. And we also talk about the hard stuff, like the things that we're trying to navigate. And I'm a big proponent for having these networks, because I think the most important thing is that you need to hear that you're not alone. So, not only, you know, having your husband and your friends who don't maybe understand what you're going through, just say, like, look, we believe in you. We've seen Mm -hmm. what you can do. Like, you got this. But you also need people who do understand, who can be like, you know, I felt like that, too. I -hmm. had my advisor say something like that, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, those things are so important because they're validating. And when Mm -hmm. you get that validation, you're like, okay, I'm not crazy, There's nothing uniquely bad about me. I just need to keep moving forward. And they remind you, you know, why you came here. Um, This is not to say, of course, (coughs) (laughs) that if this is ultimately not the environment for you, then that's important to figure out too, you know. But a lot Mm -hmm. of times... Even when you're in the right place, even when you're doing, I think, what you're meant to be doing, you have those days and those moments when you doubt and when you're like, I, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, having that reminder of, like, why you are here and that you're capable and you are um, is so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we, this is also a big part component of this this whole project and this podcast is to create a social network, a community um, where, you know, you can talk to people who you, can, you relate to, you know, and you can talk to them about not just, you know, the struggles of whichever field you're in, but just like, you know, how you feel as a person struggling, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so, you know, to all our listeners, remember, we are creating this network for you. So, you know, come onto the website, get on that directory and reach out to these people because they're here to be your community, even if it's online.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the power of online communities I I and I think others have seen like in the last few years right we all were online and mm-hmm. I think I've built more scientific communities and networks the past 3 years than I have like in my entire career and I think it's been amazing like I realized I can talk to scientists in Europe and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. make connections and that's important Um, And I'll say something else. This is not kind of what we're talking about, but it just popped (laughs) in my head and I really want to get it out as we're talking about something kind of like this. You know, oftentimes like on social media and Twitter, you hear like this constant complaint about people complaining about Mm -hmm. academia, you know, and they're saying, oh, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And also, this is bad for future students to hear like the hardships, but I actually think completely opposite to that
0: no Mm -hmm. I think
1: it's important for people to know what they're getting into I think it's important Mm -hmm. for people to recognize that their struggles are not their own that other Mm -hmm. people struggle with the same things I think Mm -hmm. it's actually generally really empowering if somebody wants to go to graduate school and they're fully aware that you know they may have struggles these types of struggles then I feel like they're more prepared when they do happen and importantly they have an idea of what the outlets will be you know whether Mm -hmm. it's Therapy, if it's severe, or if it's making these networks with friends and making sure that they surround themselves with supportive pe- supportive people, um, mm-hmm. this is how we embolden and make stronger like our next generation of scientists. And mm-hmm. we can all like we, I think most of us are not here because we don't love what we're doing. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, like we we love the science, mm-hmm. and I love the academic environment. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there aren't issues with the academic environment yep. or things that we would want to change. And I think having these communities talking about these things is how we make these environments even better, um, mm-hmm. you know, supporters of future scientists and leaders.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really, that is, I think that's the most refreshing thing about this new, uh, I, I always say like Gen Z is going to change the world because <laughs> they're very like, it, they just like know how to be open and communicative and be honest about like hey, that, that sucked and this is good but that sucked and i think a lot of the older generation the culture was like you just hold it in you just don't complain don't air out your dirty laundry you just keep pushing through but that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't actually create a very productive happy environment and you know they it, it doesn't give people A choice to decide if this is really for them. And so I'm glad you did bring that up because I think it's great that we're a little bit more vocal about the things that aren't right because then we can fix them. We Mm -hmm. can work on them.
1: Yeah. It also makes science more of a community science is what I like to think Um, because Mm -hmm. it's very individual to kind of hold things in and feel like you're the only one struggling through these things. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm having trouble writing my dissertation, they're able to say, oh, you know, this is what I did when I was having trouble focusing. And you're like, wow, um, that actually worked for me. Like, you know, it just makes it more of a community effort. And I honestly think that that's how science should be. And that's a thing that can only improve um, our enterprise as a
0: whole. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So now that you've successfully completed graduate school and a postdoc and you're moving on to be your full-fledged primary principal investigator, um, that, that, that tells me you've gone through obviously many different types of interviews, right? From like interviewing for graduate school to a postdoc to faculty. So what what are some key differences between those interviews? Like what were some of the major things interviewers for were looking for when mm-hmm. you applied for those different positions? And, like, how did you prepare for those different expectations for those interviews?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I think for graduate school, I think the biggest change is that um, you're supposed to go from somebody who's excited about – you're supposed to still be excited as faculty, Mm -hmm. but somebody who's just excited about science and eager to learn um, more and just kind of beginning to understand some of how science operates – to somebody who's driving science and talking about it and leading those conversations and so like mm. what what i mean in practicality is that when you're a graduate student and you're applying you know somebody's telling you about their research and they're I think, not usually expecting that you fully understand everything, but that you find components that are exciting to you and that you can ask good questions. Mm. Um, And so, you know, you're listening to this spiel about the research and you're hearing things and you're like, oh, so what's, you know, this, what's this, or what are you thinking about for the next steps? Or um, did you think about doing this? You know, so it's about asking those questions. Mm. I think when you're a faculty, It's about presenting the questions that you're going to ask. So Mm, I think it's a very different environment there. You know, they're expecting... Um, that rather than you know hearing just about hearing about their science and asking questions, you're going to maybe hear some about their science, but tell them about your science, and you're going to see alignment and potential collaborations as you hear about their science. Um, and you're going to also have advice to give. You know so that's very different. Usually, um, mm-hmm. as a graduate student interviewing most faculty, I mean graduate students give great advice, but they're not expecting that you're going to hear about their research and give them advice. But mm-hmm. as a faculty. Interviewee, They're expecting, you know, if they're talking to you about some sort of biophysical problem that they um, are not an expert in pursuing, that you're like, oh, you know, and hearing that, I have some initial thoughts um, about how you could approach that problem. So it's, uh, you know, a difference. And I think that's sort of one of the overall differences. Um, I think also, like, uh, <clears throat> the expectation generally is that, um, you know, as a graduate student, you want to i think you want to come away from an interview seeing hey this person seems really excited to learn this person seems like they um I don't want to say have what it takes, but that's what comes to mind because th- that sounds horrible. But what I mean is, you know, they have the things that they need to start to answer questions, like the mm-hmm. motivation and things like that. Um, I, I do not mean have what it takes, like grades and stuff like that. So don't one, anyone <laughs> listening to misinterpret. Um,
0: she means like motivated, curious, inquisitive. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, sto- the stock needs of a scientist. Exactly, really, like, and creative, yeah. Yeah, and creative. It's, uh, that, actually, let me like put a pin. On that really quick, um, grades scores hmm. they are part. They are part of getting into grad school. As is, you know, publications are part of getting a postdoc. And I know for faculty, the requirements are sky high. But for those of you who are interested in graduate school, and you might not have the best grades, you might not have the best scores. That doesn't exclude you from. Possibly being an amazing scientist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. being an amazing scientist can come in so many different forms, but really it starts with this like wanting to like learn and find something new and just kind of like be a little weird and be like, "Oh man, what is <laughs> going on over there? Like why does that look like that? or why is that happening over here and like, can I make that better it's It's more just kind of being a little different, actually. (laughs) Being different helps a lot in science. (laughs) I
1: agree. I agree. And uh, since you put that pin, I'm going to like stick there for a second. Actually, I wanted to point out, um, and I think this is important maybe for people listening, um, what you said is absolutely true, and I'm evidence of that. So, I did not have great undergraduate grades. Mm -hmm. Um, Same
0: here. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, you know, I had reasons for that. I worked full-time the entire time I was in mm-hmm. school. I had two children. By the time I finished um, undergraduate, I mean, I literally went to class and took a test two days after I gave birth to my, oh um, my middle child. <laughs> so, you know, I had reasons. It's not as if I was a bad student. All my professors thought I was a great student, um, but I did struggle um, because of the time constraints. And mm-hmm. um, And so, I ultimately didn't have a great GPA um, when I was applying to graduate school, Um, but I went to a prep program, which is not what everybody needs to do, but that was the path that made sense for me. Um, And it just kind of allowed me to do research, you know, get a publication and um, sort of demonstrate my commitment to research. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is kind of the important thing, like you said, you know, being a little bit weird, but also you can kind of sit across the room from somebody and see if they're like, Really excited about what yeah. the concepts you're talking about and the theories you're talking about and the yeah. potential. Like seeing the potential, I think, is a huge part of being Absolutely. a scientist.
0: Absolutely. Um, so yeah. do not be discouraged.
1: Like, uh, and You know, my story is a happy ending. I went to graduate school. I was near the top of my class. So I did very well once things settled down.
0: yeah, In my
1: personal life. (laughs) You know, I got used to being a mom. I didn't have to work full time through graduate school, which is great because, as we talked about, it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of hours. Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, anything's possible. I mean, if Mm -hmm. somebody had just looked at my grades, if I had said, oh, I'm not going to apply to graduate school, then I wouldn't be here as faculty today. Um, And importantly, I'm... I belong here. Like, that's the important part. Yes, you part. do. And yeah. other people, you know, I, I always tell my son this story, and I'll, I promise I'll stop on this pin. but <laughs> It's okay. Um, but my, my um, oldest child um, struggled a bit in school because he has a reading disability. Mm-hmm. And I always told him the story of Carol Grider, um, who won a Nobel Prize as a graduate student, or for the work she did as a graduate student. And um, what I learned about her and I hope this is true because now I'm saying it on a podcast but I learned it from (laughs) the NIGMS the older NIGMS director so he I hope he was right um he told me that actually she um struggled on the graduate the GRE the you know entrance test and that's because testing was difficult for her and I think either she had a type of dyslexia or another type of reading disability obviously though an exceptional scientist and the story there is that you know, it's not for scientists always about the grades and how mm-hmm. well you do on standardized testing and that kind of thing. It's do you have, like you said, that curiosity, that creativity, um, that ability to see the potential and be a great thinker. And you know, unfortunately some of our graduate schools sort of struggle, I think, to see that type of thing mm-hmm. in students, but I think they are honestly getting better at that. I'm personally glad mm-hmm. to see the GRE going away in a lot of a lot of schools because I don't think that the, you know great grades are what makes a great scientist, um, yep. and I think we're starting to see better what are the what those things are. So absolutely, don't be discouraged. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> poor grades.
0: <laughs> yes, don't be discouraged. If this is something you're passionate about, if it's something that you're excited about, at least try. At least try, because someone will see that passion and someone will see that excitement, and they'll be like, "Oh no, there's something here." and they have what it takes. So, you know, mm-hmm. just that's what the they have what it takes is. It's like they see that you are going to do it because you love it and love something will really push you to do your best, not your grades. So yeah, anyway, absolutely. Pin. We'll move the pin now. (laughs) All right. Um, Do you want me to go back to your original question? Yeah, let's go back to the original question. Yeah. So like, you know, the preparation of the different types of interviews. Yes. So Mm -hmm. preparation, preparation for
1: graduate school interviews, I think is about, um, familiarizing yourself with the place. Um, most of the time, before you actually show up there, you will either provide names or get names of people you're going to interview with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, common advice, and I think it's actually good advice, is to read a paper or two, or at the very least, you know, read. If they have a lab website, read what they're what sorts of questions they're interested in, um, and sort of have just a familiarity. Now, this is not like, hey, memorize everything they do. No, that's unnecessary. The conversation will go organically, but you you've just sort of you know f- familiarized yourself with what. This person is passionate about in terms of mm-hmm. science questions. And so when you come there, chances are in a lot of graduate school interviews, faculty who I think sometimes like to talk about the research, which is totally understandable, <laughs> mm-hmm. will spend the majority of the time telling you a lot of these things. Um, but if you have that background, you've already sort of been thinking about it. And then you can ask those, you know, good questions um, as mm-hmm. you hear about what they're doing. And I think that that's important. The other thing mm-hmm. is, how do you demonstrate that passion and that curiosity and that kind of thing? And I think that's not only in the questions you ask, um, but in how you talk about yourself, like what what drives you, what makes you get up, what makes you excited. Um, so you have an opportunity here to think about these things ahead of time. You know, what what about science do I really enjoy? What makes me mm-hmm. want to apply to graduate school? Make sure you sort of have that really clear in your mind And I don't think there's any right answers. You know, that's the important thing. Like, you don't have to come up there with um, prepared answers about, this is why I should be a graduate student, or this is why I would be perfect. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I got perfect grades, or um, I have a publication, or anything like that. No, it can be, you know, whenever I'm in the lab, like, that's where I feel, you know, a lot of happiness and joy in, in finding out new things and that kind of thing. So just, I guess thinking about doing some research and thinking about, you know, why you're there and how you can express sort of your interest in science, I think mm-hmm. is important as a graduate student. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's basic interview questions that I'm, I'm not going to cover, but I think are asked commonly, you know, why would you be a good fit for this program? Um, that Things that are asked in any job or career that maybe you want to think about before you go mm-hmm. there. Um, sometimes people... You, and I think, this is the other thing, for graduate school interviews, and in general in academic science, I found like, I feel like you have to be prepared for anything. <laughs> so, just kind of get yourself in the mindset of being prepared for anything. I Most of my graduate school interviews were like that, like I just described, people telling me, you know, 10 or so minutes about their science, me asking some questions, then them asking me about my science, what I had done thus far, trying to assess whether I understood What I was doing. That's also an important part. So if you worked in a research lab for a summer or a year, great. But can you talk about the science? Did you really understand the project? Um, And so making sure you're prepared for that, I think is important. Mm -hmm. But I also had random things, you know, I had um, people ask me uh, a good amount of the time about hobbies and people oh, yeah. say like oh you should make sure to turn it back to the science that's just a test you know sometimes it's not no <laughs> some people just, just like it's know you yeah, yeah some people just want to get to know you like are mm-hmm. you personable and can they relate <laughs> to you and mm-hmm. i don't know so um so you kind of just have to be prepared and i had people who were totally different i had people who asked me about equations and that kind of thing and so it's just you know i think being prepared for anything um is the best you can do. I don't think there's any right answers. I think that's the, the most nerve-wracking thing. People are like, well, what if I mess up and forget part of their research or something, right? <laughs> so I'll tell you, before I move on to the faculty, one quick funny story. When I was interviewing, uh, I think I probably shouldn't say, but it was at UPenn. Uh, when I was <laughs> interviewing there, um, I had my list of faculty that I was going to meet with, but this faculty member showed up at the dinner on the first night and he was like, hey, I heard you were interested in meeting with me. And so... I wanted to know, like, what interested you about my lab? And to be honest with you, I shouldn't probably say this, but I had made a list and I had looked at people initially, like what they do, but I hadn't really sort of memorized the list. And because (laughs) he wasn't on my final list...
0: Oh, no. the information
1: was lost oh, so no. I have a faculty in front of me saying you know what's interesting about my lab and I have no idea oh, no. who he is or what he <laughs> researched right so oh, you know God. the best route there I was just honest about yeah. it and at the end of the day we had a great like hour long conversation mm-hmm. he appreciated that and then he told me about what he did and then I told him why I thought that was cool you mm-hmm. know so at the end of the day you know it's not just about preparation but in mm-hmm. belief that you have the excitement and the interest and you can just kind of be honest in those environments. If you don't know something you don't know, but are you curious to learn more? That kind of thing, right? So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think preparation is important, but also just going there, kind of trying to be confident and relaxed as much as possible um, (laughs) and express, you know, yourself. Mm
0: -hmm. Faculty
1: interviews. Yeah. So, the preparation is similar in some ways. I think you do need to read... The papers of people who are in your department that you're going to be interviewing with. The difference is, um, you need to really be thinking about how your science potentially aligns with theirs or is there Mm. potential for collaborations Um, you need to also be thinking about what's the flavor of the department and how do you Mm. fit into you know thinking about okay this person's studying this and this and this how do I fit in to what the department as a whole is interested in Um, and so getting you know reading the papers and thinking about those kinds of things I think is really important you also have to be really prepared to talk about your own science in depth um, and so, hopefully, you're know, preparing for that's easy. Um, but sometimes you do need to, like, you know, give yourself a reminder and a refresher. And that includes what you did as a graduate student. So, you know, it's not just that you're going to talk about your postdoc science. Somebody mm-hmm. could say, Oh, I read your paper on this from graduate school and I was really interested. Like, how did you do this? Um, you know, how did you use this technique? And so, you got to, you know, you need to make sure that you're able to talk about that. And that's really important. They want to see that you've really sort of mastered all of these things that you've published and that you're bringing a new expertise to the department um, mm-hmm. that's going to fit in well. Um, I think other than that, the, the advice is generally the same. You know, there's small things I could point to, like in a long conversation, um, but being yourself, being confident, um, you know, knowing your place in the scientific world and, Um, being really passionate, expressing that passion about what you want to do and how you want to mentor students and all of these things, I think is really important. Um, The last thing I'll say is the difference to me between one big difference also between graduate school interview and faculty is you're not supposed to... I don't think the expectation is that you're just speaking off the cuff necessarily about all of these things. They want to see that you've really thought about your science program, that you've really thought about how you're going to mentor students, that you've really thought about how Mm. you're going to teach students, what's your teaching philosophy and that kind of thing. And so the Mm -hmm. way you talk about things is not just supposed to be, you know, oh, I think it's really great to mentor students, you know, I mean, that too, but... (laughs) what's your approach to mentoring students? What has your Mm -hmm. experience taught you about that approach? Mm. And so um, I think that's another important thing is to sort of demonstrate that you really thought about these types of things.
0: Yeah, that's really, that's really, I'm like, I'm like in my head taking notes because I'm like, okay, when I'm ready... <laughs> I got to do these things. No, that's that's really, that's that that's, those are really good pieces of advice. I wanted to touch on like um, a, a word that you said. It's like confidence. So I know that this is something a lot of people struggle with is confidence. I know that even though, like I, I was talked about this when I was talking to Danielle about um, faking it till you make it. Like sometimes I just need to pretend like I'm yeah. better than I am to like get myself in the mindset and the groove of like presenting myself in the best way. So what is your advice for, our listeners who might not feel as confident or they feel kind of intimidated what, when they walk into a room, especially if they walk into an interview where there's no one in there that they can relate to, that looks like them or kind of feels like them. Mm-hmm. So how, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, you know, that's actually, a, it's a tough question. One,
1: of course, fake it till you make it is always good advice, right? If you don't <laughs> feel it, you still can act it, right? Um mm-hmm. It's a hard one only because, to be honest with you, confidence is not something that I've struggled with in the past. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'll tell you why. That sounds like a really, okay. like, boastful thing to say. No, it's not. But I think that's I, a great thing yeah, to say. Yeah, but I... um. I had a really awful childhood, like, this is not a secret, I've written about it. Um, And I think actually the one good thing that came out of that is I know, like, who I am. Mm. I know, like, if I'm in a space that I belong in that space, I have seen the worst in people, and I've seen the best in people. And so, it's really hard for me to be afraid or intimidated by anyone. Um, that's awesome because you know I've just seen so many things like how can you be intimidated when you've been shot at like you know that kind of thing wow. right yeah. um, and so that person like anybody sitting across the room from me the dean or whoever is not scarier than the person who shot at me when I was seven years old like do you oh, know what wow. I mean so mm-hmm. um, that's just a personal thing but obviously <laughs> that will not <laughs> apply to everyone but I think that's What I'm saying, though, is the core for most people, you have to remember, like that you're not here by accident, you have to remember Mm. what you've been through. If you're in the room, and you look different than most people in the room, you know, to be specific, for example, let's say you're a woman, and you're the only woman in the room. All of the things that happened to you as a woman, the jokes, you know, the not being taken seriously, all of these Mm -hmm. things you fought against to be there in that room, like, you are strong. So, you have to remember that, like, these people in the room haven't had to deal with some of the obstacles that I've had to deal with if they look differently than me. And yes, they have expertise that you have to respect, they have leadership skills that you have to respect, but you also have to respect yourself and your journey and what you've Mm. been through. And I just also generally don't think that anything happens by accident. Like, I think sometimes people feel, um, you know, like, maybe I don't belong here. Um, I've kind of fooled everybody, that kind of thing. (laughs) But I don't – the way that we're analyzed and evaluated all throughout our careers in STEAM fields – makes me believe that nobody is generally here by accident. I mean, you go through the dissertation, you go through interviews, you go through committee meetings, um, you go give presentations, you get feedback. There are no accidents here. And you have to get Mm. to the point where I think you can remind yourself of that. Like, I am not here by accident. I have something that I want to share with them. And I'm going to try my best to just share that with them, as enthusiastically as I feel about it. Um, this mm-hmm. is not to say that I never get nervous because I absolutely <laughs> get get nervous. In fact, public speaking sometimes makes me really nervous still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily get nervous because um, I lack, I lack the confidence, you know, I'm just like, mm-hmm. am I going to deliver this message the right way? I don't know. I, I, I've tried to practice, but <laughs> maybe it will come out all wrong and they'll misinterpret what I'm saying, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think just, you know, faking that confidence and part of the faking it is reminding yourself over and over again, even literally sometimes in the most intimidating situations I've been in, I'm telling myself literally as I walk up to the room, you have mothered three children, you have been through more than most people, you have survived this, you will survive what's about to happen in this room like, you're here for a reason, go knock it out the park, and then walk away and happy with I what love you've that. done.
0: Yeah, that is so good. I literally, I, I do like a pep talk to myself, too. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, it's kind of like the dun, 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 like, yes. it's like playing in exactly. my head, you're like, I'm, I'm going in, it's, I have the tiger time, you know? Um, you know, I, I think, I think, first of all, let me just say, I was talking to T um, earlier and I was talking to her about how, like, you radiate this power. Like, I've only seen you, like, I don't think I've, like, we physically haven't, like, actually been in the same room, like, sitting in front of each other. But I th- I've, like, seen you on campus, mm-hmm. but I've definitely met you multiple times virtually. And every time, just, like, you have this, like, this this power that like emanates from you and when you said like I don't struggle with confidence like yeah you don't like it's like it's bam it's like right there (laughs) and I think I think this is such a beautiful thing that we should celebrate. Being confident is not the same thing as being delusional yes, no. or like arrogant. Exactly. Being confident is knowing you. Like I'm, this is what I bring to the table. I I might need to learn a few more things, but this is my value. This is what I bring. And I think what people need to understand is that confidence is um, built based off of what you know of yourself. exactly. Yeah. And I think you just have to go back and think about like, who am I? Like, what do I bring to this conversation? Like, you know, like how how can my light shine into this world that I'm in, right? And it's it's okay if you're still learning things. It's okay if you're like, you know, your grades aren't the best. It's okay if, you know, you're not whatever standard, you know, picture perfect, whatever you imagine. Because who you are, like as you are, that is what builds your confidence, you know, that is what's going to make you stand out in a room. And, you know, when you walk in feeling good about who you are, everyone else feels that too.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, and I have to say on what you said, confidence is absolutely not arrogance. Like, I feel myself that people who are the most confident are often the most willing to admit when they don't know something. You'll hear me mm-hmm. say all the time, like, you know, in a talk, oh, I didn't understand quite what you were saying here. But I yeah. think like, this, 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 and this is my question. Like, I am completely comfortable with saying there's something I don't understand. Because mm-hmm. one, it's silly to think that everybody knows everything, even yeah. if you're an expert. Um, and two, you know, not knowing something doesn't mean I don't have a spot here or I don't belong in this place. It means I don't know that and I'm going to find it out because I'm capable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I think, yeah, I think this is a really nice like take home message to everybody. It's like um, know yourself, know your strengths, your weaknesses. And once you know like your strengths, once you know who you are, there is room for like more growth. And that doesn't mean it's because you're you're small and you have to grow more. It just means now you're just adding, you're just evolving and changing. And it's a dynamic process. So yeah, like sit down and ask yourself. I think this is like something all of our listeners could do like right now. Okay. So like, you know, <laughs> sit down, <laughs> sit down, take a moment. Like I know moments are hard to find these days, but maybe even like five minutes. And if you have to like write it down, but write down maybe a couple things about yourself that you really love and you really admire and respect. And like, keep that in your head like as a reminder whenever you walk into an interview or walk into a meeting and you're like oh I don't know like what if don't think about the what ifs just be like okay I have this this and this I got this you know what like we'll go whatever I don't know I'll learn I'll ask questions but this is who I am and this is what I got to offer so yeah, I, I think it's really great that we talked a little bit about this confidence thing because I know that's something that a lot of like first generations struggle with, a lot of low income mm-hmm. students struggle with, a lot of people of color, um, other marginalized groups struggle with because we've been excluded for a really long time. Yeah. And so sometimes it's hard to accept that that exclusion was wrong. And you, know, you internalize it saying maybe then I was wrong. No, 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 no. Yeah. You're fine.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> I just want to add too, though, if people are sitting there and thinking about what's good about them, please do not compare yourself to others. Like mm-hmm. that is really important because I think what a lot of us who you just in the groups you just mentioned will do is we'll go, oh well, I am this, and then they're like, oh, but is that really good? Like other scientists in my program are not like this, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you shouldn't shouldn't be comparing yourself to any to others, and also you know you should be keeping in mind that the unique things you have, have a place. Like, I, that's the other thing. Like, in terms of the whole diversity conversation, I think uniqueness advances science. And Absolutely. so, those unique things are awesome. Like, I just said I've, I've never really struggled that much with confidence. Honestly, it's just because I'm tough. And my background has made me tough. And toughness mm-hmm. can be seen as a bad thing in some ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think... Many of us who fit into those categories are tough. We deal with things mm-hmm. that other people or other peers don't have to deal with, and we manage those things on top of all the other things. And so, yeah. you know, we have to keep those, those things in mind, like these unique traits, in other words, are important. If we, yes. you know, anything, if we speak multiple languages, that is an important, mm-hmm. like, you can be a much stronger science communicator like if you, yep. you know, speak at the science label, level in those languages. Like, I think all of these things that people sometimes feel like, mm-hmm. yes, but is this an ideal scientist? No. Like, don't be comparing yourself to the world mm-hmm. view of what an ideal scientist is. Just be able to acknowledge like what your strengths are as Mm -hmm. an individual and
0: Mm
1: -hmm. those have a place in science I guarantee you
0: that is that's truly empowering I think that's that's what we should end this with it's like there is a space for you there's a space for you uniquely you whoever you are so you know sit there think about you and what you can bring to the table And walk into that interview like, I got this and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if it's not, if it's not here, there's other places too. The world is your oyster. Right. If it's not
1: fine, it wasn't meant to be. And that Mm -hmm. is an important thing sometimes, recognizing the places that are just not meant for you. Um.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I've definitely had one or two interviews where like, I was like, huh, that sucked that that didn't work out. And then I like find out later what that environment is really like. And I'm like, oh my God, I dodged (laughs) a bullet. So sometimes it might, rejection always hurts. You know, um, it doesn't feel good when you're not picked. Okay. We acknowledge that, Um, but understand that when you find the right environment you will blossom you will grow it'll be what you need to succeed so I hope you guys all feel really good going into whatever next phase is out there whether it's applying to college or grad school whether it's applying for that postdoc or getting that faculty job or moving to industry or getting that nonprofit or becoming a science journalist we've had all these people so far with so many different career paths they're all kind of saying the same thing it's like I love what I do I'm excited about what I do so I walk into the room and I'm like this is what I want to do so pick me because no one else is going to be like me and I'm going to bring you something that no one else can bring you so good luck everybody
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely go get it
0: yeah, so thank you so much, Crystal, for joining us today. It was so much fun talking to you, and I'm so glad that we were able to do this and we're gonna miss you so much at Yale and UNC' is so lucky to have you. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, yeah. I think I'm lucky to be at UNC too, so
1: it works both ways.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I'm very happy for I'm so excited for whatever. I'm whatever amazing other things are going to be doing in the very near future. So thank you so much. And for our listeners, you guys know what to do. If you want to create a network of steaminists, join our website. And we'll also have resources and like tips and guidelines on um, the page as well. So we'll see you next week. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like STEAM the podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to STEAM the podcast on RSS.com community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of STEAMinists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.